It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A major renovation of Denver International Airport is before Denver City Council. If this $1.8 billion plan is approved, security screening would move from the main floor of the terminal to the ticketing level, and there would be other changes. But some airlines, including United, Southwest, and Frontier, are pushing back on the plan. Reporter John Murray is covering this story for the Denver Post. And John, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Why do DIA officials want to move security screening? If you take a look at the way that security is set up now on the floor with those two main checkpoints, it, it's not hard to see that there actually are some some pretty big security vulnerabilities in there. Somebody could you know, come in, God forbid, with a weapon from outside on the, the upper balconies. Um, there's an open open air over the the security. There's uh, the ability to see what the TSA agents are doing. There are are monitors um, that are kind of in open public view if somebody's looking. Um, So that's kind of the rationale they put forth to to move it upstairs. There's also just the space crunch down there. Um, When it's really busy, the lines, you know, it it turns into a nightmare for passengers. The lines snake back into the baggage claims and it's it's just not a good situation. So they, they think they can do it better upstairs, um, especially because the ticketing areas um, have not been fully utilized by the the airlines lately. United has given back some space of their ticket counters. There's some empty counters up there. So they think that that with the use of kiosks and people checking in online and not needing to to queue at the ticket lines, much like they used to, uh, that there's some space that they can save up there from consolidating the ticket counters and then move in the security on the north ends of those ticketing areas. A while back, we spoke with the CEO of DIA, that's Kim Day, and uh, she told us that the security that's in the Great Hall, that's what the terminal is often referred to, that it's partly a question of optics of the security lines there. So our number one complaint from passengers is TSA. They see them, they look down from the mezzanine and they see the queues and they think they're much longer than they are. They also don't like to disrobe in that big space. People don't want to disrobe in that big space. And uh, so the idea is to move it to the ticketing level. And do do you think there would be enough space up there, even if counter space isn't being used the way that it used to with all those self-check-in stands? That's one of the big points of contention from the airlines. Um, DIA says that by upgrading the TSA technology, the screening technology, as well as the setup, they'll have more lanes. They'll have kind of a, a little bit of a different design where you're not waiting in you know, a big snaking line. You're, you're going into much more segmented lines um, so that there is that space and there is some overflow that would not divert you to the ticketing areas, um, but kind of over um, to the balconies. Now the airlines, they're they're not quite buying it. They don't think that the uh, that the the numbers kind of add up as DIA has presented them. Um, so there's some quibbling over you know modeling and and how fast these these lines would move. DIA thinks that you know you could also almost double the throughput of passengers just by having more efficient screening machines. Um, that you know a better setup of lines. Um, you won't need as much TSA personnel to, to get as many people through as fast. We'll talk about why it's important to have airline buy-in in just a moment. But I should mention that there's a link to a video rendering of this proposed project at cprnews.org. And naturally, the question is, if you move security away from the Great Hall, what happens to that main floor, that large open space under the white fabric roof? So the uh, the north end of that... so. Th- 
they would do two things basically on the main floor. The south end that's close to the hotel and the transit center where people come in, a lot of people come in from there now. Yeah. Right now they kind of run into the security lines. If you're checked in online, you're not checking a bag. That's actually a good thing. Uh, it saves you a little bit of time of walking uh, through the terminal. But um, it's, what they would do is create a kind of a welcome greeter area down there. There might be a few shops, things like that. But it would be more of a plaza, open space. They're thinking like Union Station, kind of a more of a gathering area. We give people staying in the hotel a place to hang out with some, some things to do. Um, but that would all be on the secure side, wouldn't it? So that's on the unsecure side. Ah, okay. And then so we go, part of yeah. the hall would be yeah. open to those waiting. Yeah. So then you go to about the two, th- the northern two-thirds of the terminal. That would be a secure area where you only access that once you're upstairs. You go through security, and then you go down escalators to that main floor. And then before you go down again to the the train to take to the concourse, you'd have this open area that is secure where there's a lot of shops, restaurants, uh, bars, things to do, duty-free shops, things like that. Now, this is another... uh, kind of question from the airlines and even some outside observers, how much are people going to want to linger there after they've already gone through the rigmarole of checking in for their flight, going through security? They're going to want to head to the train and get to the concourse, and then they might get a snack or or something there. Yes, I felt that when you get to the airport, you get through security. You kind of want to be close to your gate. Yeah. The airport, um, you know, they're not projecting a huge, huge spike in concessions, but they are thinking that Ferrovial, the the contractor that they're doing this deal with, um, has some expertise with running other airports that they can um, bring in options people will want to stop at if they've got the time. Not everybody will have the time. So they're thinking that they can ring a little bit more um, per square foot out of these concessions areas here. And this uh, provides some money on the back end to help repay the uh, the private partner as well as, as make DIA more money. Okay, you mentioned Ferrovial. This is a Spanish company and they would be essentially the, the private partner in this $1.8 billion plan. How would the deal work with Ferrovial, which has a lot of experience with airports worldwide, right? And it's it does. It does. Uh, Ferrovial, they, they're a um, multinational conglomerate. They've got about 100,000 employees around the world. They do a lot of things um, in the privatization uh, field, but they also do a lot of things that are in municipal services and other things like that. Now, one thing that they do um, with with Ferrovial airports is they have contracts at a number of airports in Europe uh, and some other places. Now, their biggest uh, deal uh, or most high-profile operation is at Heathrow Airport in London. Ah. They run one or two of the terminals there. Um, they Not to say that they have had smooth sailing all along. They had a hiccup when they opened Terminal 5 at Heathrow. That seems to have been ironed out and it seems to... to be well run now. Um, and they run the whole terminal. They built and run the whole terminal. Here, we're talking about them renovating um, the existing terminal um, and then running some concessions or managing concessions, rather. Okay. And it's a long-term deal, obviously, uh, that would be yeah. laid out. 34 years. So that's four years of the renovation project. Um, and that's a $650 million renovation project. And then 30 years after that of running these new concessions. And at its most basic level... Um, is that, that's yeah. why this is a $1.8 billion deal? It because it includes that longer time horizon? It is. So you've got the $650 million up front that is for the, the renovation. Now, DIA is covering 75% of that cost or 74% of that cost. Um, and then the, the contractor, the rest. At its most basic level, you've got them sharing the, this upfront cost... And then Ferrovial getting paid back over those 30 years for the money that it puts in the game and for running the concessions or rather managing them that they will contract out to you know 
operators for those concessions like it happens now at the airport. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are diving into this proposed deal that would bring big changes to Denver International Airport with reporter John Murray, who covers City Hall in Denver for the Denver Post. And John, I want to get back to this idea that uh, airlines uh, are pushing back a bit on this plan. Um, Why and why is their buy-in important? Um, the there's only a couple of main reasons. Um, number one, uh, probably, is that they're going to pay for a lot of this project. Uh, it relies pretty heavily on uh, an increase in airport fees as well as existing fees. Um, this is kind of you know the various fees that they pay in rent and and uh, you know in, per implained passenger. All of that adds up. Right, and, the fees that the yeah, airlines pay. Yeah. Um, so it's projected that for this project and some other projects that DEI is going to have going on in the next few years, the airlines will see about a dollar per passenger increase in the fees that they pay. doesn't sound like a whole lot, but to them, you know, money is money. Um, and so they are not uh, publicly convinced that, that this is the most economical way to do this project. The second um, factor is is whether this is going to work as the DIA thinks it will with consolidating security up on that upper level. Yeah, if those numbers bear out. Yeah. I do want to mention that the airport is is growing. I mean, it just seems like every month you hear about new passenger records. And uh, you reported earlier this week that in a separate project, DIA plans to add 26 gates in the next few years uh, and routes along with those gates. So there's more recently United's direct flight to London, Norwegian Air's nonstop to Paris, Frontier's expansion. How does the city council feel about this? That one, uh, that passed without any debate on Monday night. Okay. Uh, and that's, there's a big difference there. It's, it's doesn't have the, the big, scary $1.8 billion number attached to it. Mm-hmm. Um, right now, it was just an initial contract. There's going to be some more contracts coming forward. This is a more traditionally financed project where DIA is just hiring designers, contractors, and, and project managers and to how do does, this expansion. How does the council feel about the bigger deal, the long-term deal that that uh, deals with the terminal. Mm-hmm. So there's a mix of views, as you might imagine. Um, it, it seems to have pretty heavy support from a number of council members, but there's also a number that, that are skeptics at this point. Um, it's it's kind of hard to tell how that falls, but I think in the end, this might end up being somewhat of a close vote. Um, there's some who just haven't been able to figure out, you know, with a private public-private partnership like this deal, it's like a number salad. There are so many numbers coming out and dollar figures and different payments going back and forth that it's hard for the outside observer. Um, and the council members get a little bit more information than we do, but it's hard to, to figure out, is this a good deal for Denver? I'll say that council members Zebra Ortega and Rafael Espinoza wrote a letter, I think just this week, asking for a 120-day delay in, in a vote on the contract. That's um, been one point of contention. There, This contract is – its basic agreement is about 150-something pages, but there are 15,000 pages associated with the contract that have been dropped on council in the last few weeks. Now, they've been briefed on the project leading up to this, but they're being given essentially five or six weeks to approve this. There's a September 1st deadline that the airport is facing. Um, that's one year of negotiations period that they had with Ferrovial. Once that September 1st deadline hits, if there's no full contract approved, Ferrovial gets paid $9 million to walk away, essentially, for its its time and its resources. $9 million? Now, that's they probably have spent more than that in the, the last year, huh. um, but so far they haven't been paid, and, and that is what's said by the contract. So there's pressure from DIA, like, hey, we've got this deadline. We could face some financial consequences, and they might walk away, so we need to approve it by then. 
council members don't like to be uh, put on, under pressure to, to move quickly on something like this. On a long-term deal like this. Uh, if a plan is approved, what's the timeline for it? The timeline is that um, right now it's it's not fully designed. It's only about what they call a 30% design. So the next year uh, would, would go forward with um, Saunders Construction. That's a local company. They're going to be probably spearheading the, the construction aspect. Uh, they'll hire architects. They'll they'll get the full design taken care of. The, the hope from DIA is to start construction next summer and finish the renovation in 2022. All right. Would you expect big disruptions very, very quickly? Um, the idea of having uh, one one big contract for the whole terminal is that it should be less disruptive. But I imagine that that uh, as they do it in stages, um, there certainly will be things that, that passengers notice as, as areas of the airport get closed off or there are temporary measures put in place. John Murray covers City Hall for the Denver Post, and we talked about big changes that may be in store at Denver International Airport. City Council has scheduled a public hearing for August 14th. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. As a teenager, Allison Jervis of Pueblo started writing a novel about suicide. She posted it online, and it's gotten 24 million views. Jervis is now 21 and landed a publishing deal. Her novel, In Bookstores, is called 27 Days. And a welcome to the program. Hello. Thank you for having me. Why don't we have you start by reading a passage from early in the book. I think it gives us a really good sense of the story. Yeah, absolutely. Two days, one small news report, and an obituary and a local newspaper later, there was no denying the fact that Archer Morales was dead. As much as I hated the thought of one of my classmates feeling so much despair that they believed ending their life was the only way out, it was the truth. More than once, I found myself standing on my tiptoes in the hallway at school, trying to catch any small glimpse of Archer, but it was pointless. He'd always been there, somewhere in the background, but now he never would be again. So Archer Morales has killed himself, and you tell this story from the point of view of one of his classmates in high school, Hadley Jameson. She ends up getting a very strange offer from death. He gives her the chance to go back in time 27 days and change Archer's mind. Yes. Tell us about Archer Morales and his relationship with this young woman. Archer, I'd like to consider is kind of a maybe a Byronic hero. He's kind of has a dark, mysterious past just a little bit. And, you know, of course, Hadley being a young teenager, she's kind of like, oh, my goodness, this guy is so cute, you know, in the back of her mind. But, you know, that's not what her deal is about. So Archer and Hadley definitely come from very different backgrounds. Hadley obviously comes from a place of privilege. Her parents are wealthy and they have very good paying jobs and things like that. And Archer's family's had a little bit of a tougher time. I don't want to give away too much about what they've been through, but, you know, they haven't had the easiest of times. And Archer is very skeptical of Hadley and her motives and is a little bit wary to be around her because he's very aware of their differences. So with Death's help, Hadley travels back in time 27 days. And what does she do to try to prevent Archer's suicide? She kind of does a little bit of everything. There's a chapter where she says she feels like she's like a lost puppy following Archer around. She really just wants to get close to him and to get him to open up. And she really wants him to understand that she can be a shoulder to cry on if that's what he needs at the moment. She just really wants him to understand that she's there for him, even if she is maybe a stranger. And indeed, death is a character in this book. 
did he, and I want to point out death is a he yes. in, your, in your mind. Did you think about making death a woman? <laughs> no, honestly, <laughs> now that I think about it, one of the, like, the, one of the first images that comes to mind when I think of death is Peter Fonda and Ghost Rider. Okay. <laughs> so a male figure. <laughs> this is how it happened. By sunrise tomorrow, your father will be healthy as a horse. And you will have your whole life ahead of you. It's your choice, Johnny. All you have to do is sigh. Okay, so that's why death is a he. And writing about death, is it possible that this has changed your view of death in general? That's a very thought-provoking question, actually. I don't know. Death is kind of not what I would call someone you'd want as your best friend, but he's not a bad guy either. So I guess when you put it like that, you know, maybe it doesn't sound all that bad, you know, death, the afterlife. That's really interesting. <laughs> well, it also makes me wonder if your parents worried about you writing about suicide, about death, maybe even getting more comfortable with the idea. No, they didn't worry at all. They were actually very aware that writing the story and as, you know, the characters developed, the chapters came one after the other. They knew it was more of a therapeutic experience for me just because of, of my experiences with depression and anxiety. And there was a time where I did want to kill myself, too. So I've, I've been in that position before. And it's not a place I want to go back to. So drawing on those experiences of my own as I was writing, it was my way of getting everything that I'd felt over the years out on paper. Mm. And here was something that I actually had control over. And so your parents knew that it was cathartic for you. Yes. What uh, what led you to the brink of suicide? I don't really know. Maybe a culmination of a lot of things. I remember I was freshman in high school. I'd just been put on antidepressants and I was going through a few different medications every couple of months. And that kind of was making me feel a bit funny. And I probably should have been in counseling at the time. Actually, no, wait, I think I was. But, you know, sometimes that's not enough. Hmm. There's still something missing. And as much as you want to feel better, you just don't. And so I think that's that's when I finally hit rock bottom. So do you relate in many ways to your character of Archer Morales? Definitely. I would say I'm more like Archer than I am like Hadley. She's a lot braver than I am, I would say. I wish <laughs> I could be as brave as she is. I wonder if you have heard from readers, perhaps who've experienced something similar uh, to what you have, uh, who've, you know, really connected with this and uh, can identify with this story. Actually, yeah. Over the years, I've received a lot of messages, whether it's through email or Wattpad or Instagram messages of people telling me this really changed my view on suicide and the impact it has on people. I've also been told things like, oh, well, it changed my mind on counseling or medication and things like that. And that's very humbling as an author to have someone feel like they can trust you enough to share that very personal thing about themselves with you. And, you know, it's always kind of overwhelming to think, oh, my goodness, this story I wrote and I didn't think it would ever turn into what it did it has actually meant something to someone. Hmm. So it was it's always very, very exciting and 
kind of sad at the same time that that person was ever in that position. But I'm happy they had a story to read that they could connect with. Did you have any fears that in just in writing about suicide, you might end up making it more attractive or glamorizing it in some way? Is that a sensitive balance to strike? Yeah, that that can be very difficult. And I think when I first started writing it, that wasn't on my mind. Mm -hmm. I also think it depends on your own personal viewpoint of suicide. So myself having been at the point where I wanted to make that choice, it's not a very good thing in my mind. You know, I have a very, very negative opinion of suicide and just how disastrous it can be to yourself and to the others around you. And to be honest, I can't think of anyone that would want to glamorize suicide. That's that's a dreadful thing to do, in my opinion. But I can see where it would be difficult. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Pueblo author Allison Jervis. Her new book is called In 27 Days. And uh, it didn't start out being published on paper. She wrote the novel when she was just 16 and posted it on Wattpad. It's this online writing community. And uh, some 24 and a half million people from around the world have viewed the book since you originally posted it. Did that offer you the chance to get like a lot of group community feedback? In other words, does that mean you had 24 million, 25 million editors? Oh, no, no. That would be cool and overwhelming. But uh-huh. no, mostly um, I just got a lot of comments of people saying, hey, I really like this story. Or in some instances, hey, this story sucks. But, you know, it is what it is when you put your work out there for the Internet to see, you know, you open yourself up to negative scrutiny. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you change anything, though, based on feedback you got? Yes, actually, I did. Because in the first draft of the story, Archer's family is Italian. So there's the use of the Italian language in the first draft that wasn't as accurate as it could have been. And so a few readers from Italy messaged me and said, hey, I'm very excited to see Italy represented in your story, but here are some of the things that you got wrong. And I said, oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry. And so that was what we corrected through the editing process with this final version. Huh. Yeah. It's so cool. It is this like global crowdsourcing in some yes. ways. Yes. What challenges have you faced as a, as a young writer? Sometimes I wonder if people don't take me seriously. And... Coming off of Wattpad, I didn't do the traditional route of finding a literary agent, and then that literary agent goes out and tries to sell your manuscript. So I did things a bit backwards. Mm. And so, you know, sometimes I wonder if if I'm not taken seriously just because of how young I am. I just wonder if people are jealous. Maybe. I don't know. I'd like to think people weren't jealous. When you feel that someone is underestimating you um, or not taking you seriously, what do you do? Try not to get angry, for one. Mm-hmm. But I also just try to portray myself as authentically as possible because I I do want to be taken seriously. So I'm going to treat that person with respect and be serious. Where would you like your writing career to go? I would just like to be successful. And I don't think that means making this book into a movie or selling millions of copies. At the end of the day, I just want to be happy and satisfied with myself that I've actually published a book. Well, you've done that. Yeah. So wait, this is it? Me? Well, no. That, uh, no. Um, no, I don't know. I mean, I'd like to keep publishing books, but I think I have to determine that level of success, if that makes sense. So at the end of the day, I can be happy with myself. Mm. So, it sounds like you're still trying to find out what that is. Exactly. You put it much better than I did. <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
Do you have any fear that you've hit success too soon, like too early? Not really. No. Not really, because there are still other things I'd like to do. I just graduated from CSU Pueblo in May with my bachelor's in English, and I'd like to eventually go for my master's in library and information science. So that's one of my bigger end goals is, is to make it into a library. That is you working in a library. Yes, yes, yes definitely. It's, it's likely that your book will be in a library before you I work sh- in one. I sure hope so. That'd be <laughs> awesome. Alison Jervis of Pueblo. She's author of 27 Days, and you can read an excerpt at cprnews.org. In 1971, James Garcio bought a property near Nederland, and in a barn, he built a world-class recording studio. Eventually, the big acts of the day came to the mountains near Boulder. Elton John, Chicago, the Beach Boys, the list goes on. Caribou Ranch, as it was dubbed, closed in 1985 after a fire. Well, this month, the ranch will be inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. As will Joe Walsh and Barnstorm, who recorded at Caribou. Let's listen back to my 2015 conversation with James Garcio and his friend, bassist Kenny Passarelli. They told me about the cabins on the property. All the houses and cabins were favorites of different, you know, like Running Bear was uh, Earth, Wind. Earth, Wind, and Fire. And, and, uh, running Joni, Bear was the name of a cabin. Yeah, yeah so, I'm sorry. Like, yeah. in other words, they'll say, well, this is the master Running Bear. These are the guest rooms. Running Bear was uh, Joni Mitchell, Carol King. A lot of you people. Know? And then Ure, which is— And then Ure was the closest big house. Th- that was—Alton uh, would have so stayed So that there. would have been Michael. John Lennon was there. It was yeah. kind of the—it was the bigger house. You, you had not just the barn, but you eventually built cabins so that musicians could, could have somewhere to stay. We didn't build it. It was an old guest ranch from the turn of the century, and we just restored the buildings. We we never built a new. We added on and modernized, but we never built anything. Huh. The yeah. actual barn when we did the very first Joe Walsh Barnstorm record, the studio was still being built. That's the first song recorded there. Was yeah, it was the Barnstorm record. Yeah, right. Why don't we hear a track from that? Should we? Let's, let's do that. Let, let's do that. Did it still smell like animals when you were recording? <laughs> yes, downstairs. You say it's time to go, but you don't. Let's rewind a bit. So, Jim, in the 1960s, you were getting a foothold in the world of pop music, and you helped a band called the Buckinghams hit the charts with uh, several singles, including Hey Baby, They're Playing Our Song. <laughs> hey Baby, They're Playing Our Song The one we used to hear when we used to get along Hey Baby, They're Playing Our Song Let's get back together, that's where we belong Jimmy became the manager and producer of a band that would later be called Chicago. And you came to Colorado. Why did why did you come here to build a top flight recording studio? Well, I'm gonna I'll have to tell you the spinning wheel story. I'm I'm all ears. That's blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. At that time you had, I, I was a, at Columbia Records and they were union studios. IBEW was the union for the networks. International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, yeah. Correct. And and it just was the rules. And so 
we had a recording in our studios. It's hard to imagine, but I had a record there, and, and you could pick an engineer, but it was a union shop. You couldn't touch anything. You couldn't EQ. You couldn't mix. There wasn't any rock and roll in Columbia. The first rock and roll band was Paul Revere. The second was the Buckinghams. And after that, during the Blood, Sweat, and Tears session, you want to play Spinning Wheel because at the end of Spinning Wheel, the track stops, and I had to create a umpapa, a section. The assistant engineer who would be reading the Wall Street Journal or his investment portfolio <laughs> hit the wrong button and erased all the tracks. Oh, after how many hours? Oh, I, the master was done. I was just putting on a, an overdub tambourine or something. And I saw the red lights go on on all eight tracks. And he kind of froze. And until I could jump over the, the wall to stop the machine, our master was gone. You just had to go and redo it? Well, when, when you get to the end of the song and it dramatically changes, it's a splice, and, and then you can time how long the master was erased and then the master comes back in. If you want to know the reason for Caribou, that's where it came from. That, that said, was someday I've got to have freedom I mean, I've got to get out of this situation. It drove me absolutely crazy. As you're building the studio, word comes that Joe Walsh, a former member of the James Gang, who later joined the Eagles, and a Colorado resident, needs some studio help. And he comes to Caribou. What happened is that Joe had moved from Ohio, leaving the James Gang, and moves to Nederland, Colorado, okay? And he had a 24-track in his cab, in his house, and it broke down. And Bill was up and said, oh, he says, oh, Jim Gersio is building a studio. And that's how it started. He drove from Netherlands over to the ranch. And that's – he's – Was that a TIAC board he brought in? Yes. A TIAC board. A little TIAC. You guys are nerding out on me We're here. totally nerding out here. <laughs> well, <laughs> one of the songs uh, that he recorded was Rocky Mountain Way. Yeah. You know, just a classic rock riff. wrote that with Walsh. Yes, I was fortunate to be a part of that with, with Joe. Again, and again, being a Colorado kid, Joe comes to the Rocky Mountains and we're all kind of looking around and he's assimilating what a great place that he's chosen to live after being in the Midwest. Most, you know, Joe is always associated to Cleveland or Kent State, but he fell in love with Boulder and, um, and lived up in Netherland. I mean, was Vitaly there? Invite Joe Vitali had come from Canton, Ohio. So the three of us were were barnstorm and um, being in the Rocky Mountains, looking around where we were, and and that's how how the song came together. Really, kind of a blues riff, but it was also political too. I mean, mm. bases are loading, Casey's at bat. That was Joe's comment on Nixon. And when we played live, we'd say that it's time to change the batter. <laughs> 
Kenny, you played with others at Caribou, including Elton John, who made a record there called Caribou. Tell me what that was like. They came to Caribou Ranch because they were big fans of the early of the Barnstorm record. The sound uh, Elton is a, is an amazing audiophile. I mean, he's one of these guys that just back in the day. And reason why he was number one, he listened to everything that came out. He would just go to Tower Records and have carts full of the new records, and he listened to his competition. And he heard the Barnstorm record, but then he heard the second record that Bill did there was uh, Rock and Roll Hoochie the Rick Derringer record. And so Elton heard that record, loved the sonic quality of that and the Barnstorm, and that's when he decided he was playing in Denver, and he took a limo up to see the ranch, and he decided that's where he wanted to make his record, which he called Caribou, and then he made Captain Fantastic, and then I was on the third record, Rock of the Westies. That was his third record that he that he did, and he did... Yeah, he did two. He had, he had three singles that weren't on the records, which is Philadelphia, Philadelphia Freedom, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, which is, he, he brought El, uh, John Lennon to, to, the, to the ranch, so those early songs were all really inspired by the first two records that came from Caribou and he wa- he wanted that sound. Caribou Ranch was a recording studio near Nederland that drew rock and roll superstars. Later this month, it'll be inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame. We're hearing memories of the ranch from its founder, James Gersio, and from bassist Kenny Passarelli, who recorded there. One legend who also recorded at Caribou was John Lennon. He wanted to know where to get boots, where to get a cowboy hat. He went right into Nederland. Nobody said anything. I mean, we took him down to Boulder. We took him down to Martins, and he's all because May Pang, the girl he was with during that period, that's called the Lost Summer or something. She was just up at the ranch, and she has a lot of pictures and memories. And uh, they had a great time there. Elton John too liked to see Colorado beyond the ranch, and went down for hamburgers and hot dogs in Boulder. Yeah, but but he was he was uh, significantly more. Um, Accosted, I think, by the crowd. He, he, well, you wear a pink fur, pink yeah, glasses. Yeah, he was a little and outlandish. And, pink fur coat. But I remember going. <laughs> said Elton, I mean, you want to be discreet. This is yeah. not the right wardrobe. We come in in a limo and, and, <laughs> and stop at the Red Barn, and he, he immediately rushes in to buy some hamburgers. People are going to, like, stop and look for a second and just go, wait a second, was that Elton John? And, whereas Michael Jackson, I think— didn't he was he, discreet for was about discreet. till they found out about ten days, seven, yeah. eight, ten days. Nobody knew he had a great. He, nobody knew. When was the first time Michael Jackson came? Uh, during that big thriller, right after Thriller, the big tour. What did he record there? You know, we think uh, he did a lot of basic. Tra- Michael was totally healthy. I'm telling you, he had a micro, micro. He had a microbiotic diet. He had his own chef. We had to build a dance floor. We had to put plywood or linoleum down because he were this guy worked out every day, four to six hours on his steps. 
he we I liked him very much. He wasn't uh, um, he wanted to buy the ranch. Michael Jackson wanted to buy oh, yeah, Caribou yeah, Ranch. Yeah. No, he was uh, he said he said you know I can could I walk outside. And I said, yeah, come on. I put him on a horse. We went. He had the bodyguards couldn't keep up with us. He was a pretty athletic kid at that time. He was uh, 25 years old, you know. But uh, when he is that when he offered to buy it? Yeah, was, yeah, yeah. It was and I said, gee, my, Michael, I'm fixing my house. I just had another kid, and I had just come back from Santa Barbara, so I drew him a map. I said, right outside of Santa Barbara, San Inez. I was looking at ranches there because they're closer to LA and there's no winter but it's kind of hot in the summer because I said Michael this is beautiful now but in the it's a long winter at 8,000 feet so I drew him a map and he went he went right to San Inez it became Neverland it became Neverland yeah I see so yeah. you had a role in Neverland. I, yeah, I'm not. I forgot. I haven't told too many people. That. I drew him a map. I said, you know what, Michael, it gets cold here. I want to go back for a moment to Elton John. Um, he also had a, a sense that Caribou had its own sound, that there was something unique about that place. How did he describe it? He described it as the records that he heard, that the early records, the very first couple records that came out had a different bass and drum sound. There was a sonic sound that he couldn't put his finger on, but it was coming from Caribou. And uh, that's a whole other story that Tom Dowd, the very famous producer engineer, who was also, uh, I think he worked on the Manhattan Project. He's the guy that, from a physicist point of he view. He was a physicist. He was a physicist. He's the one that Like the Manhattan Project that led to the bomb. Yeah. Okay. As a kid, as a young guy, Tommy Dowd, the great Aretha Franklin, blues producer, was on the Manhattan Project. And how does he relate to this? He, he as a he physicist, figured it out. he figured out that we heard it. by the way, the, the lack of oxygen. And again, we're working in analog. We're working tape. So the sound hits the tape a certain way and is recorded. And it, there was a sound that only came from 8,600 feet. And that's what it was. And when you hear those records, whether it's the Chicago records or it's the Barnstorm records or Joe Walsh or whatever it comes out of there or, or if it's – Here's a, the deal. It's the Eddie Rabbit. There's something it's the, there. It's, uh, the speakers are – they're moving. And that's determined by the atmospheric pressure. I didn't know any of the scientific terms, but there'd be more bottom, there'd be more top than you were putting in. Does that make any sense? It, it, to you? it does. That's it, my it, opinion, and I kept telling Tommy that, and he said, "Well, you're absolutely right. Let me tell you why." And he had scopes and everything. So wow. So that's my opinion. So that's what Elton heard in the early records. But was it when you hear that Earth, Wind, and Fire bottom, or you hear Chicago bottom on those later records? It's a it's a pretty bass. Can you hear that in Just You and Me from Chicago? Yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely. You are my love and my life. And you are my inspiration. Just you and me. Simple and free. Did singers, on the other hand, have a hard time with the altitude because you know so often we had oxygen. We thought they would. We and they did, and some, some and we did. had oxygen. If you leave me now with Chicago, I had some very high, high 
harmony parts. Oh God! I mean, I can hear it in my head. Yeah. yeah well, that was Peter Peter Cetera, and there was, and then I or, I went to L.A. I went to I'm at sea level. I orchestrated, put the strings on, came back and mixed it at the ranch, and there was one little tweak I had to do on a high background part. And Chicago was about to go to Tokyo, about to go to a, a tour. So I said, no problem. I grabbed, I grabbed the master. I flew to L.A. I went in the studio. He couldn't hit the note. He couldn't hit the note at sea level that he'd hit. Uh, you can do it. It's about – this is what Tommy explained later. And he says he couldn't hit the note that we had just done about three versions of up there. So we had a flyback. He hit the note got on a plane and caught up with the band in uh, Australia or Japan. There were a lot of uh, famous people that popped in over the years to add a track or just hang out. Uh, Stevie Wonder, Al Pacino, Dean Martin. What is your favorite memory of getting out in the country? Because that was part of the experience. You mentioned Michael Jackson and the horse. Well, the best snowmobilers were Elton's guys. Yes. Davey and so, Nigel and Dee. They were the most out. And, and Bernie. Bernie Toppin, too. We almost lost Bernie one day. He ba- I mean, he bailed yeah, he, out right in front of me. They were. They love snowmobiles. Well, you imagine horses. these guys are from London. They flipped out. <laughs> They're at eighty six hundred feet. I think the environment, being able to walk out of a studio, and and if it's the summertime, you can jump on a horse and. And, and go riding off up to the falls or you can go and stand by the creek and fish or in the wintertime you're there recording in February and you go outside and the sun's out and you jump you on see the every sun. star or you go you go uh, yeah, we go to the top of the mountain watch the sun come up it was that's a, what those guys did a lot it was the very first destination studio in the world see here's yeah. the key you don't you don't break down when you are in a studio and they're and they're booked in three to five hour shifts, there's someone coming in. You got to break all that down. Yeah, I, I'm in, I'm a huge favor of one take, but the way to get the most magic one take is to be set up, have your sounds. And Elton, I believe, was like this. But the caribou, you could walk away. You could walk away. Let's do it tomorrow. Let's do it tomorrow mm. without having to move anything. That's yeah. what the studio was about. Yeah. What's an example of a track where you think that really? helped having that that space kind of you know mentally for the artist well with the chicago records all of them all of okay <laughs> i'd say the elton john stuff were it was a little bit different because yeah, he, he rehearsed there. we when we did rock of the westies let's say a track like island girl great one track one take and so the fact that we could rehearse in the studio which you couldn't do it in new york or l.a I just have to think that you guys saw the industry change so much. I mean, you know, CDs were starting to replace records and tapes. How do you think that the industry is different today than when you guys started at Caribou? And I don't just mean from a technological standpoint. Um, what industry? <laughs> what? Yeah, the industry. Well, yeah. It, here's here, Let me just... Go back to the fact that analog, that, that 
the, the great music that was happening at at that time in a big caribou was tape and and so what really changed things was the fact that there was a brief period right in the late 70s where if you looked at Billboard magazine, there were no gold records. Things were changing. Disco music, you could make a record for eight. I think the first Roxanne, the police record, was an $8,000 record. And that the would be suits, compared to what? Like Compared to the budgets that it took to, to come up to Caribou. There was big budgets. You yeah. know, to, to be able to rehearse for a week and then cut in a recording studio. That's, that's a luxury. That's a luxury. So, so when the suits took over the industry by the end of the 70s, when things changed, when there was no goal records, where, where nobody could pay the big budgets on, on, um, on recording costs, times changed. The industry now is a computer in your house. And um, some great microphones, and and so the, the having a, a studio like like Caribou, people are doing things differently, and 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 it's cheaper. Or, or oh, no, that's a huge look at. I'm totally in favor of it. Separate the music and the process from a business. Okay, you 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 don't. Uh, uh, Grudge the proliferation of. I've heard demos that come in that these kids are putting together with. Computer drum trucks and they are killing me sound wise. Hmm. So we're kind of in a process where it's a vo- it's a musical vocabulary that's being mastered by young talent. That's how I would describe it. There's no the walls are broken down. When the ranch burnt down in 1985, uh, there were reports that firefighters damaged some gold records that were on the walls that day. Yeah, things happen. Yeah. How, how did you feel that day? What what happened? Well, you know? I actually – it's just how they – it just was a terrible – was a space heater that started the fire in the sprinkler room. You know, there, there was the, all the sprinklers and the pumps and everything. So it kind of disabled the sprinkler system. Oh, I see. And, and, and the, the funny thing about it is when we reco- got the heater that had failed and caught fire in the wall – we missed the liability expiration by like uh, six days, five days. Oh. It had burned down a bunch of homes. You had to kind of take a spiritual look at the thing. And the what ranch wasn't do? entirely burned down. It was the no, control room. No, it was just room. the control room. Why not reopen? I was kind of tired of having people around. Sure. Right? You were raising your and children raising and the kids. business was changing. And, and, and I did not. I was. I could see what was – you know, I kind of saw transitions and ridiculous spending and economics of the business. It was either feast or famine. You either blew it out and sold five, ten million units, or you're in a bar. It was much more difficult for talent to evolve, and I was very frustrated by that. Caribou Ranch produced 45 top ten albums, 18 Grammy, and 20 number one Billboard hits. But of all the songs recorded in your studio, hit or no hits, uh, why don't you leave us with one that stands out as a symbol for you of Caribou? Yeah, I would I would do a Terry Kath song. I would do uh, either Brand New Love Affair or Tell Me. I from think the I would Electric do – I think Tell Me would be fantastic. And what is it about Tell Me in particular? Well, it, Terry had the most incredible voice and for some reason – when I just would turn him loose up there. This is from Chicago. Yeah, Terry Kath in Chicago. 
there was just a kind of a spirituality out of his vocal. What a lovely note to end on. Um, and here's Tell Me. Gentlemen, thank you so much for sharing these stories with us. Thank That's you, That's great Ryan. to see you. Tell me. James Gersio founded Caribou Ranch, the former recording studio near Nederland. Bassist Kenny Passarelli played there. The ranch will be inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame Sunday, August 13th at Fiddler's Green Amphitheater. Passarelli will be inducted, too, with Joe Walsh and Barnstorm. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News.